Bibles, please, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 8. Jeremiah, chapter number 8. I want to speak to you this morning about the ultimate why question. I suppose that why is the world's most often asked question. Why this? Why me? Why now? We're always asking why. And we hear it in regards to a lot of different things, but never do we hear it in such a serious way as what we see in our text this morning. Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning in verse number 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Before we look at the details of this, let me just kind of sum it up for you. This is speaking about a sinful people that are in grave danger. It's speaking about a people that had an opportunity to be saved and they let it slip away. And understand that word saved simply speaks of deliverance. It can have reference to us being saved in the sense that we are delivered from the penalty of sin. That's what happens whenever we trust Christ as our Savior. It can be used in regards to what we experience by way of sanctification where we are delivered from the power of sin over us. It can be used in reference to what we'll experience someday, and that is the deliverance of the very presence of sin, which is our glorification. So whenever we think of this word saved, we want to also consider that he's speaking to a nation that has sinned against God, a nation that God had given an opportunity, and because of that, God had allowed the heathen nation to conquer them. And they are suffering horribly as a result of their sin against God. And notice he says here, the harvest is past and the summer is ended. The summer's a time of opportunity. And it, it's, it warns us about uh, the danger of delay. I mean, you could ask any farmer, you know, that they realize that there's a time to work and then, you know, there's a time to wait and there's a time to reap, reap the harvest. And so summer is a time whenever, you know, that, that there's a delay and it's a time warning us about the danger of neglect. If you don't get it done then, you're not going to get it done later. And this is an agricultural society that Prophet Jeremiah is writing to. These are people that identify with the seasons of the year. And he mentions summer, and automatically they think of summer and then, of course, the harvest that is coming. In the summer is when you have the most sunlight. In the summer is when you experience the most growth. In the summer is when there's the most uh, sunshine and and the most uh, uh, opportunities that you have. And I can remember as a boy sitting 
uh, in school and, and as you know, whenever summer was coming and looking out the window and, and immediately I was thinking about playing ball, hunting, fishing, all of the things that, you know, you, we would do in the summertime and just daydreaming uh, during class. And so, you know, summer was a special time to a young kid uh, because it was the time, you know, that out of school, no restraints. And for Israel, this was a great opportunity. And he says, the summer's ended, notice, and the harvest is past. And the question is, notice verse 22, here's the question. He says, why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Now, there at least three things about this that we need to notice. And the first thing is the problem uh, the difficulty. And, and, and if you read the first 19 verses of this chapter, in fact, you could read the first seven chapters. All of the way up to this point, you see the problem. The problem is that Israel has sinned and they refuse to repent and it's leading to their ruin. They had the opportunity and, uh, and they refused. Look back in chapter 5, verse number 23 for just a moment. And you can, you can see the attitude of these people toward God. He says, verse 23, But this people have a revolting and rebellious heart. They, they are revolted and gone. Now look in chapter number 8. And verse number 13 for just a moment, and we're not going to read all of these verses, but you get the idea. You would think of people that had, uh, that had, you know, been so sinful against God that they would be ashamed of that. But verse 12 says, were they ashamed when they had committed, uh, uh, I've got to get under the light here. Uh, they committed abominations. Nay, they were not at all ashamed, and neither could they blush. And therefore, and therefore they fall among them that fall in the time of the visitation. They shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Let me stop just right there and, and just tell you, if you read on through verse 18, you see their attitude toward their sinfulness. And, and it's the same as man's problem today. Their problem was sin. Our problem is sin. And the wages of sin is death. Because a holy God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. God wouldn't be just. If God just winked His eye and said, Oh, well, I love them so much, I'm just going to overlook their sinfulness. After all, I love them so much, I gave my son to die for their sins. And so consequently, I'm just going to save everybody. Well, God can't do that for those who reject His Son, that reject the price that He paid. And, and if you look, and you don't need to turn there, but in Romans chapter 3 and about verse 26, it says that God is just and the justifier of those that believe. In other words, for God to maintain His holiness, for God to be both just and the justifier, he had to devise a means whereby he could justify us, forgive us of our sins. I mean, just, you know, he can't arbitrarily do that. And so by taking upon himself the form of the flesh and condescending down to this sin-cursed earth and offering himself up as a gift, as a sacrifice 
for us, he became not only the justifier, but he maintained his holiness. He is just and the justifier of those that believe. But understand, in spite of what God has done, there are those that refuse to believe. And Israel here, in their rebellion against God, although God had allowed other nations to crush them, although these people had been punished horribly, were they ashamed? Not at all. Rather than to blush when they sinned, they were proud in their sin. They refused to call upon God and to repent of their sins. So that's the problem. But then God calls attention to the provision. Now, remember this, that here and in several places, sin is pictured as a disease or in some cases as a wound. In reality, sin is much worse than that. It's likened to a disease merely as a word picture to help us in our understanding of its danger. I mean, you know, if the doctor tells you that you have cancer, you know you have a problem. That's a dangerous problem that has to be dealt with. And so whenever the Lord wants us to understand how serious sin is, He often refers to it as being a a disease. But understand, it's more serious than that. It is rebellion against the God of heaven. It's a crime. And look, every unbeliever is living in rebellion against God. There are some folks, you know, think, well, you know, I know I'm not a Christian, but I'm not against God. Yes, you are. You're a rebel against God. You are trampling underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're insulting God with every breath you take. In fact, the Bible says the plowing. Think about the farmer going out to the field and he plows the ground and plants the seed and raises the crop. And it says the plowing of the wicked is sin. Every activity they do while they're living in a state of rebellion against God, everything is sinful. They can't do anything to satisfy the justice of God. So sin is likened unto a disease. But notice, that's only half of the picture. Salvation is referred to as a bomb in Gilead. Now the bomb was the gum or the resin that came out of the balsam tree It had medicinal properties, you know, and it was a common thing to use that ointment uh, back in those days for various, you know, diseases and so forth. This is, you know, whenever I was a little boy, mom thought, you know, that mercuricone, methylate, and mentholatum, those things would cure anything except a mashed finger, and that was kerosene. You ever stick your hand down in a can of kerosene whenever it's been squashed? It's not a fun experience, let me tell you. And I always, you know, ask for something happened. I want me cure but it won't methylate. It burns. But, you know, we've got to hear about all of these different cures. Well, this was one of the medicines they used in that time. And he didn't have to explain what he meant when he said, is there no bomb in Gilead? I mean, here, here's the problem. You have sinned against me. Is there not a solution? That's the idea. And it's really easy to see in this a type of Christ. My, my favorite soloist, I guess, uh, other than my wife, my favorite soloist who's dead and gone now was a was a little fellow of the name of Jack Hokum. Anybody ever heard of Jack Hokum? 
I knew you all had heard of Jack Holcomb, and he he had a you, you know Roy Orbison in in rock and roll music has that unearthly voice, unearthly voice. Well, Jack Holcomb had a voice like nobody else. I'm not saying he was the best singer ever, but anything he would sing would touch your heart. And, and he used to sing, "There is a bomb." In Gilead that cures the sin-sick soul. And boy, I, 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 can, I can almost hear him singing even as I mention those words. And, and if you've never heard the song, you ought, to, you ought to find it and listen to it. And if you don't do anything else, just read some of the words to it. Because I want you to know that our God cares enough that He has provided exactly what we need. Amen? And what we need, we find in the person of Christ. The bomb from Gilead came from a tree. The cure for our sin was nailed to a tree. Whenever they talked about the bomb of Gilead, it was something that was considered precious, something that was fragrant. And, and even so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a sweet aroma in the nostrils of the Father. That is an acceptable sacrifice to God. We find that it has healing power just as Christ has the power to heal and to forgive. It's, it was available. It wasn't like gold that you had to dig up from the hills. It wasn't like the pearls that you had to find when you dove down into the depth of the water. It wasn't something you had to discover. It was something that was out there available for everyone in that day. And it was something that was easily applied. I mean, even a little child can take a jar of salve and put some cream on. But the most wonderful thing, I guess, is the fact that it was effective. It worked. And that's why they kept using it generation after generation. They would use that. And generation after generation, Christ has been the solution. And, and all for free. There's no charge. Amen? I'm, look, some medicines cost you an arm and a leg. There's some medicines that, you, that some folks need that they can't afford. But when it comes to what you need the most, it's all free. But notice something else here. He, he, he mentions not only, not only the medicine, but he mentions a physician. It, you know, he, he says, is there no physician there? You see, Jesus is the medicine and He's the minister also. He's both the gift and He's the giver. He gave Himself for our sins. Thank God there is a provision for the problem. And the problem is sin and Jesus is the provision. I, I shudder to think every week, every time I stand here, and, and, and sometimes you, you, you don't know what to do. You come down and it was last week, I believe it was, and someone commented after the service. And I, if I remember right, we had come to the invitation and I extended just one verse, and for some reason, I just felt like that we just need to close the service right there. I, I, I don't know why. Sometimes we'll sing three or four verses, and sometimes it'll go on. Sometimes, you know, I'll just feel led to beg and to plead with people to whatever you do, please trust Christ as your Savior. Don't leave here without knowing Him as your Lord and Savior. And then sometimes, you know, whenever it's, it's like the Holy Spirit saying, 
you know, you have to pick fruit when it's ripe. You can't force salvation on anyone. But you can sure let them know that it is available. But here's the thing I want you to notice. And the reason for the question, and that is the perplexity of all of this. There's the problem. There's the provision. But the perplexity is clearly described here in verse 22. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Question mark. Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? That's a good question. In fact, that is the ultimate question. Why would anyone in such a great need refuse the remedy that's freely provided? Why? Let that sink in a little while and think about it. Why is it that whenever God has made salvation available, when God has promised to forgive us of our sins, God has assured us of a home in heaven, why would anyone reject that? I can almost guarantee you if some credit card company comes along and says, look, we've got, we've got uh, a credit card we, we will offer you and for every purchase we'll pay you back 50%. And there's no fees for the credit card. It's all free. And for every expenditure, we're going to reimburse you 50% of that. Well, everybody, everybody would go for a credit card like that, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, whenever you find a deal like that, nobody refuses them. I mean, just common sense tells you take advantage of that. And yet, whenever it comes to this matter of salvation, every week, I'll guarantee you every week, all across America... There'll be pastors get up, Sunday school teachers that'll get up and pour their heart out trying to explain the importance of salvation. And there'll be people get up and walk out the door and go their way happy as a lark and just one step, one breath away from a devil's hell. Why? Well, I think there's some reasons. For one thing, some folks are unaware they're unaware of their condition and unaware of their need. They don't realize that their biggest problem is sin, that their greatest need is Christ. They're not aware of that. You say, well, how could anybody not understand that? Well, that's why the Apostle Paul says that the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded their minds. Sometimes it's so frustrating trying to break through that hard shell of a sinner and get them to see their need of Christ and get them to respond to the Lord and you wonder why. And, and you just want to throw up your hands in despair and say, what's the use? I give up. I'm tired of trying. You know, it's just there's just no hope. And we wonder, why would they reject Christ? It's because they are blinded. They are unaware. That's, let me tell you something about salvation. It makes no difference how wonderful the song service is, how glorious the preaching is. It makes no difference about how we try to describe heaven and hell and anything else. We'll never be able to convince anybody of their need of Christ apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in their heart. That's why the Lord said, no man comes to the Father except the Spirit draws him. It takes the working of the Holy Spirit 
in order to make effective the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. He uses it. It's not something that Brother Preston or I accomplish when we preach. It's something that God does as a result of us sharing the Word with others. But for those that are unsaved, they are blinded as to what their need is. And and we need to be aware of their unawareness of that. Some are uninformed as to what the cure for their problem is. They might admit they're a sinner. Although I'd never been a churchgoer, never read the Bible, didn't know anything in the world about spiritual things. If you had asked me just straight out before I was saved, uh, are, are you a sinner? I'm certain I would have, uh, if, if I wasn't too drunk to answer properly, I would have to admit, yeah, I'm a sinner. Nobody had to tell me how rotten and evil I was because I knew. I, I, I just knew within my heart that this can't be the right way to live. It's just just wrong. When you, when you do the things that sinners do, there there's something you know. God gave us a conscience for a reason, and you can violate your conscience and harden your heart to the point that you know seemingly it no longer bothers you. But your conscience is speaking to you. It's God's way of speaking to your heart. The toughest people on earth to reach with the gospel are people that think they've got it all figured out. But you go down here to a bar room somewhere and find some old drunk, some old boy that's been an alcoholic for the last 30 or 40 years about to fall off of his bar stool. He knows what he is. Nobody has to tell him he's dirty, rotten, drunk, that you're robbing your family. Nobody has to tell him that. He knows that. So there are people that that are aware of their sinfulness, but they are uninformed as to what the cure is. I wouldn't have had a clue if somebody would have said, okay, I, you know, you, you've admitted you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, you're not good for anything, you're a vile sinner, you're just a drunk, uh, you'll admit to that. Now, uh, what, what do you think you ought to do about it? Well, I don't know. I tried, made some effort to change. Especially whenever Bev filed for a divorce and uh, and I moved back with her mother and uh, her and the the kids, uh, two kids at that time, moved back over to her mother and I get back in town and they're gone and the sheriff's looking for me trying to serve the divorce papers and boy, I just with all of my heart I thought I've got to change. I don't want to lose my family, you know. I've got, but as hard as I tried, there was no way I could change. It was humanly impossible for me to ever become the man that I needed to be. And it was only through trusting Christ, which I didn't do because I was totally unaware as to what, as to what the real need of my life was until somebody shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. But then there are some others. There are other people that sometimes we're perplexed because they're not saved. And it's not a matter of them being unaware or uninformed. It's not like they've never heard the gospel, but they're just uninterested. Just uninterested. And I think the main reason for that, of course, is that because sometimes people think they are the cure. 
Like my daddy used to say when I was witnessing to him about being saved, and which I started witnessing as soon as I got saved and told dad and mom about it and started talking to them and about their need of salvation. Mom assured me she was. Dad assured me he wasn't. And he just let me know, son. He said, I, I, I feel like I'm just as good as those people down there at the church, and I figure if they're going to heaven, I'll go to heaven too. And the, as I've said so many times, the fact of the matter is he was better than most of those people down there at the church, at least just as good. But he didn't understand that, that, you know, that we do not have the power within us to cure ourselves of this horrible disease of sin. It's impossible. Is there no physician there? He said, why is it the health of the daughters of my people? Why aren't they healed? Why isn't this problem corrected? Why haven't the people been delivered from their sinfulness? Is there no bomb in Gilead? No physician there? Is there no means been made available? But then there are those who are just unconcerned. And I think we could attribute that to their pride. Just unconcerned. They, they might, they might acknowledge that they, they are sinners against God. They might acknowledge that, yo, yeah, oh yeah, I believe that stuff about Jesus coming from, you know, coming down and dying on, I believe that. I celebrate it every year at Christmas time. I, I even talk to the man upstairs once in a while. That's a quote now. I'm not calling him that. But that's the, that's the attitude they have. But they're just unconcerned. The pride in their heart makes them think nobody has anything I need. But then there's another, there's another group. And I think this is where here in America maybe most of the folks fit into, and that is that there are some that are just unhurried. By, by that I mean they just procrastinate. They would agree with everything I preached here this morning. They might even acknowledge, well, preacher, I know that you're right. I've heard that since I was a little boy or a little girl. I know that I need to be saved. I, and, and, and I plan to be. I don't, you know, I don't want to die and go to hell. I plan to become a Christian someday. But they're just not in a hurry about it. I've heard people say, well, I want to sow my wild oats first. You better, you better stop and think about the crop you're going to harvest someday. Amen? You better realize that death ends the day of grace. There's a hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. And you're not, look, you're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. There's going to come a time that you are going to presume upon the mercy of God until it's too late and you take that next step. You say, well, would God do something like that? Absolutely. The Bible says, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did he do that? Because first it says Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. It's kind of like God saying, all right, you want to play it like that? You harden your heart against me, I'll harden, I'll harden your heart all the more. Why would God do that? That He might suffer the consequences of His sin. 
And God knows when we reach that point of no return, and God knows that we'll never respond to His invitation. Let me tell you, there's some people in this world that are just as sure of hell as if they were already there. Those that have committed an unpardonable sin against God, those that have reached the point in their life, the Bible says God gave them over to a reprobate mind. To do those things not convenient. That is the things that are unbecoming. You want that lifestyle? Here it is. You have it and you suffer the consequences of it. The harvest, notice, is past. There's a deadline, folks. Summer is ended and we're not saved. Hebrews 9.27 says, And after death comes the judgment. Let me tell you, whatever excuse that you might use, whatever your reason might be, rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the most foolish thing you could ever do. It's the most tragic decision that you will ever make. And here we are right at the beginning of a brand new year. And I want you to understand this morning that this can be the best day of your life. Amen. I mean, this can be the most glorious moment in your life. I loved our song service this morning, every bit of it, and just so many things. And it started earlier than that with a comment there in the office that I won't go into detail what was said, but I don't know about you, but I want to be with those folks that I love for eternity. I don't want to go one way and they go another. I want to spend eternity with those folks. And it's something to get excited about. Like as we were singing, Brother Ron last week was during the service. He was in dialysis last week. That's the only time they could get to him. So he had to miss church. He's in dialysis. And and right in the middle of it, he was watching our service, as some are doing right now by way of the Internet. They're watching this service. And Brother Ron got all ramped up and excited and started shouting hallelujah. And the nurse came in and told him, Mr. Farr, uh, you're going to have to stop that and quieten down in here. You're disturbing the other patients. Well, and like I said to Brother Ron, I said, that might be the only time they hear anybody say hallelujah. And I want you to know, knowing Christ as your Savior is the most thrilling, exciting, wonderful thing in your life. And it's the most important thing in your life. Don't leave here without Him. Whatever you do, please. Because, look, as He said, the harvest is past. You're going to presume one day too many on God. And it'll, it'll, it'll be the time for judgment. Today's the day of grace. Amen? And if you'll simply receive Christ as your Savior, Ephesians 1, 6 says, As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God. You can become a child of God by just receiving the Son of God. How about it? Would you do that while we stand this morning as we're going to sing together, extend to you this verse of invitation? We want to encourage you. We're begging you, whatever you do, if you're not saved, if you don't know you'd go to heaven if you died, please, whatever you do, 
come this morning and say, Preacher, I've put this off far too long. I'm going to settle it right here, right now, this morning. I want to be born again. I want Jesus as my Savior. I want to know heaven is my home. You come while we sing. Page three.